Hello, I'm Bob Gilmore. Welcome to Tentative Affinities, my ongoing series of audio documentaries about composers at work in the late 20th and early 21st centuries. Today, I'll be talking about the influence of the American composer Harry Parch. That was the beginning of Harry Potch's Daphne of the Dunes from an old Columbia LP recorded in the late 60s. Potch died in 1974, 40 years ago this year, but it's fair to say that his visibility, on European concert podia at least, has never been greater. It seems timely then to think about his legacy and his influence, about the enduring appeal his music and his whole artistic practice still seems to have for artists today. I'll be playing music by various composers who have responded to Parch's work in interesting ways, whether or not they admit to being consciously influenced by him. Two questions, therefore, seem to emerge. First, what do we really mean by a composer's influence? What exactly is the nature of these traces that have such an enduring afterlife? And secondly, what aspects of Parch's work are we talking about? Are we talking about the early bardic Parch, with such works as his marvellous settings of Li Po for voice and adapted viola? The Intruder. Are we talking about the Parch who hitched rides on the highway as a homeless migrant worker during the Great Depression and set to music texts he collected on his travels, such as this one from Barstow, California? Here she comes, a truck, not a fuck, but a truck, just a truck, hoping to get the hell out, here's my name. Johnny Reinhold, 915 Southwest Lake Avenue, Los Angeles.
Or do we mean the later part, with his primarily percussion-based music, as can be heard in this extract from The Bewitched? author of middle-brow music theatre works based on interpretations of Greek myths, such as his revelation in the courthouse park. Or perhaps we mean the epic part, composer of music like this from Delusion of the Fury. Perhaps in terms of influence, we're not talking about Potch's actual music at all, 
but rather the impact of his music theoretical ideas, as set down in his marvellous book Genesis of a Music, which hasn't been out of print since its second edition appeared the year he died. The answer, I suppose, is all of the above. Parch's music is as wide-ranging as that of any other great composer, and despite the efforts of generally well-meaning critics and even other composers to emphasise the surface characteristics of his work, notably its use of a microtonal scale with as many as 43 tones in the octave, his output overall is a complex mixture of highly diverse impulses and heterogeneous elements. It even encompasses, which is something very few people really remark on, a wholesale change of artistic direction midway through, when the intimacy of his early vocal works gives way to large-scale theatrical spectacles, thrilling to see, although very costly to mount, which are anything but intimate. Parch thought of himself and described himself as an outsider, a place that suited him and which he felt defined his artistic vision and, we might add, his whole personality. Is this outsiderness, then, inseparable from the nature of his legacy? One answer to this question came some years ago from a rather unlikely source, the Italian composer Salvatore Sharino, who wrote in a programme note for one of his own compositions, quote, Usually we think that to leave a mark on the history of music, a composer has to reach the height of fame. But perhaps the butterfly effect is also active in the artistic world, and marginal, forgotten characters have an impact which is frequently underestimated, or is at least bigger than we think. Such an influence cannot be measured by contemporary society, but requires an extreme space-time perspective, greatly enlarged. Unquote. That comment is from the programme note for Sharino's Il Clima dopo Harry Parch, The Climate Since Harry Parch, a work for piano and orchestra that was premiered in November 2000. It's a striking idea. Existing on the margins of society, Unorthodox musicians do not affect contemporary composition from within, and how could they for the composers, performers and opinion shapers who inhabit the central institutions of the day rarely, if ever, encounter their work? From their perspective, the concerns of the unorthodox artists are bound to seem gratuitous, or at best tangential, a classic case of circular logic. And yet, thankfully, these oddballs never go away. 20th century music in particular would be poorer without them. Their real impact is felt usually much later, all too often posthumously, and can take unpredictable forms, hence Sharino's suggestion of a butterfly effect. Here's the opening of Sharino's Il Clima Dopo Harry Parch. Thank you. 
That was the beginning of Salvatore Chirino's Il Clima dopo Harry Potch from a recording of the premiere given at the Festival d'Automne in Paris in 2000 by Nicholas Hodges with the Bamberg Symphony Orchestra conducted by Jonathan Knott. There have long been two opposing views of Potch. One is the tendency to regard him as an eccentric whose work is perhaps interesting but rather marginal. Some see him in blacker terms, as an anarchist who is disdainful of his contemporaries and of pupils and schools, and whose new instruments, designed and built by him over the whole of his creative lifetime and tuned in a microtonally extended just intonation, are a negation of hundreds of years of Western musical tradition. The second is a quite different view, one that diverges sharply from Sharuna's premise. On this view, mostly found within North America, Parch is neither forgotten nor marginal. On the contrary, in the words of composer and critic Kyle Gann, Parch is seen as the most American composer of all, the centre and progenitor of our indigenous music culture. He's a figure whose music compellingly shows what a truly non-Eurocentric music could be. The extreme form of this position is the tendency by some acolytes to exaggerate Parch's influence and impact to make him the leader of a cult that he himself would never have wanted to join. There have been, it should be said, a number of composers, some of them rather gifted, who have been influenced heavily by the external form of Parch's work to the extent of building new, justly tuned instruments of their own and composing for them. There's the interesting case of Chris Forster, born in Brazil but who moved with his family to California as a boy and was later, for some years after Parch's death, an archivist, instrument repairman and performer for the Harry Parch Foundation in San Diego. Forster soon began building Parch-like instruments of his own, a harmonic melodic cannon, a bass marimba, and, as we'll hear now, the chrysalis, an extraordinary-looking kind of harp with two times 82 strings on either side of a large, rotating Sitka spruce wheel. Although Parch didn't build an instrument quite like this, it's very much in the Parch tradition. Here is Forster performing, on voice and chrysalis, an extract of his setting of Walt Whitman's poem A Child Said, What is the Grass?, composed in 1980. The child said, what is the grass? Fetching it to me with full hands. How could I answer the child? I do not know what it is any more than he. I guess it must be the flag of my disposition out of hopeful green stuff woven 
or I guess it is the handkerchief of the Lord, a scented gift and remembrance designedly dropped, bearing the owner's name some way in the corners that we may see and remark and say, whose? Or I guess the grass is itself a child, the produced babe of the vegetation, Or I guess it is a uniform hieroglyphic, and it means sprouting alike in broad zones and narrow zones, growing among black folks as among white. I give them the same. I receive them the same. And now it seems to me the beautiful uncut hair of graves. Tenderly will I use you curling grass. It may be you transpire from the breasts of young men. It may be if I had known them, I would have loved them. It may be you are from old people or from offspring taken soon out of their mother's laps. And here you are. The mother's laps. That was Chris Forster performing part of a setting of Walt Whitman's A Child Said, What is the Grass? on voice and chrysalis, an instrument Forster invented and built in the mid-70s. Partridge's influence on a younger generation had, of course, manifested itself before that in different ways. The first younger composer who ever came to study with him was Ben Johnston, who in 1949, at the age of 23, encountered the just-published first edition of Partridge's book Genesis of the Music. Johnston wrote to Parch and arranged to come and study with him in the remote part of Northern California, where Parch was then living. Parch preferred to think of him as an apprentice rather than a student, and expected Johnston to help with repairing leaking roofs around the ranch where he lived, to fetch water, and to tune his instruments every morning in preparation for the day's work. Perhaps not surprisingly, Johnston didn't come away from his six-month apprenticeship with any finished music of his own but he performed as percussionist and occasional vocalist in the superb recordings Parch made of his own music at the ranch in Gualala. And he learned much about tuning with the help of his sometimes truculent teacher. Yet it would be a full decade before the tuning interest manifested itself in Johnston's music. When it did, it was in the highly non-Parch-like genres of the piano sonata and the string quartet. Johnston was determined to work within the new music mainstream, and to compose music that would open up that tradition to Parch's ideas about extended just intonation, which was the tuning system of the ancient Greek modes and that of many current musics worldwide, but extended by Parch to greater lengths. Rather than building new instruments of his own, Johnston opted instead for the arguably even more difficult process of training players of Western orchestral instruments to find these sometimes unfamiliar tunings. Here's the first movement of Johnson's String Quartet No. 2, composed in 1964, which uses a hybrid of serial techniques and a microtonal scale built from chains of pure fifths and pure thirds without any tempering.
That was the first movement of Ben Johnson's second string quartet, played by the Kepler Quartet on that New World Records disc, the first in a projected three-volume series of all ten of Johnson's quartets. Johnson also managed to achieve one thing that Parch himself never quite did, by developing a coherent notation system for extended just-tuning systems, which has been quite influential on younger composers, mostly in the United States. Another young composer who apprenticed himself to Parch and was likewise co-opted into playing his music was James Tenney. They met in 1959 at the University of Illinois, where Tenney was a graduate student and Parch a composer in residence. Incidentally, Tenney for a long time thought that he was to be heard in the University of Illinois recording of The Bewitched, part of which you heard near the beginning of this programme, and I myself had the disagreeable task of telling him that the recording is of the 1957 production, which was just before his time. The one he played in was in 1959, of which unfortunately no recording seems to have survived. Their working relationship was not an easy one. Tenney admitted to being rather arrogant, and to vexing Parch with declarations of enthusiasm for the music of Webern and Cage, composers for whom Parch felt no affinity. Once again, as in the case of Johnston, it was about a decade before the work he did with Parch manifested itself in his compositions. In the early 1970s, Tenney went through a process of reinvestigating many of the fundamentals of music. Rereading Parch's genesis of music stimulated his thinking about pitch. As a consequence, he came to regard intonation as, as he put it, one compositional variable among others, in much the same way that composers in the 1960s and beyond regarded notation, form, or even instrumental sonority as issues to be considered afresh for each new piece. Many of Tenney's compositions bear dedications to other composers, and here's an extract from his Song and Dance for Harry Parch, composed in 1999, and scored for two parch instruments, the adapted viola and the diamond marimba, with string orchestra and percussion. This is the beginning of Movement 1, where Tenney sonifies a text by parch about playing techniques on the adapted viola. Tenney recorded himself reading the text, carefully analysed the content with regard to its intonation and timing, and then scored the result for the instruments.
That was the opening of James Tenney's Song and Dance for Harry Parch in a live performance from Donna, Michigan in 1999 with soloist Ted Moak on adapted viola and Dominic Donato on diamond marimba. If we look now to a European context, we find Parch's influence has taken some unexpected forms. Of the great European post-war avant-gardists, both Stockhausen and Ligeti visited Parch. Stockhausen in 1964, in the company of David Tudor, a visit that Parch described as most congenial, but we know nothing else about it than that, and Ligeti in 1972. During his term as composer-in-residence at Stanford University, Ligeti made a trek south to Parch's home in Encinitas in Southern California. Years later, Ligeti recalled, I had the opportunity to play on his instruments. I was interested in Parch's basic research on pure intonation, also in the totally original music which derived from his alternative tuning concept. This meeting made me realise the power and newness of tuning systems other than equal temperament, and changed my concept of harmony. The most immediate result of this encounter can be heard in the double concerto for flute, oboe and orchestra, at which Ligeti was already at work and which was completed later that same year. Here, Ligeti employs what he called parch effects, occasional microtonal inflections in the solo parts and in the orchestral wind and string parts that produce sometimes pure and sometimes merely irregular intervals, creating a new hybrid harmonic world that Ligeti described as neither chromatic nor diatonic, but occupying an intermediate fluctuating position. Parch effects, then, according to Ligeti, can be taken to mean a momentary, as opposed to integral, use of pure intervals in an otherwise tempered intervallic context. Here's an example from the beginning of the double concerto. The parch effects are subtle, but the solo alto flute has them before the striking harp and celesta chord that comes just after a minute into the piece, and the solo oboe has some shimmering high microtones after that same chord.
That was the beginning of George Ligeti's double concerto for flute, oboe and orchestra, composed in 1972, from a Virgo CD with Gunilla von Bar, flute, Torleif Lennerholm, oboe, and the Symphony Orchestra des Schwedischen Rundfunks, conducted by Elgar Haworth. Any discussion of the effect of Parch's work on Ligeti, to call it influence seems a bit strong a term, should note that the use of microtones was already a part of Ligeti's language in works like his second string quartet and his ramifications for string orchestra. These works predate the double concerto by a few years, and it seems that the encounter with Parch essentially reinforced tendencies already present in Ligeti's work. And yet we shouldn't underestimate the importance of this brief hands-on encounter with Parch's instruments on the ever-pragmatic Ligeti, with his preference for practical experience over abstract systematising. Parch's name resurfaced repeatedly in Ligeti's conversation and interviews around the time of his violin concerto in 1992. In that work, and others, including his subsequent solo viola sonata and his Hamburgisches Concert for horn and chamber orchestra, we find further injections of pure intervals into temperate contexts. Manfred Stanke, a German composer who has the distinction of having been a student of both Ligeti and Ben Johnston, has used parch-like tunings extensively in his work. Stanke shares with Ligeti an anti-ideological stance in the face of questions of compositional technique, preferring a creative free play to the dictates of fixed systems. This is evident in his piece Parch Harp, for harp and synthesizer, composed in 1989. Despite its modesty of means, only 10 minutes in duration and involving only two musicians, this is a major work, one that appealed greatly to Ligeti. The harp uses a pure tuning based around a seventh chord without the fifth. The synthesizer, originally a Yamaha DX7 II, matches this tuning in its middle range, but rather than duplicating these pitches in different octaves, it uses microtonal transpositions of them across its range. The use of just-tuned chords in the music is complicated by the fact that the harpist is asked to change pedal settings from time to time, therefore effectively transposing the notes or chords in question by an equal-tempered semitone and compromising the purity of the just intonation. This is not seen by the composer as a problem. Parch is present with minor deviations, Stanky has written. I'm not as strict as Parch. My minuscule deviations add a kind of unforeseeable beating to the music, which I love. Here are the first two short movements of Parch Harp by Manfred Stanky, played by two members of his ensemble Chaosma. <laughs> Thank you. 
That was the beginning of Parch Harp by Manfred Stanky, played by Gesine Dreyer on harp and the composer on synthesizer. With the recent creation of a whole new duplicate set of Parch's instruments by Ensemble Musikfabrik in Germany, the continuation of the music in live performance has never seemed more sure. To return to the discussion at the beginning of this program, perhaps, as Salvatore Chirino suggested, measuring Parch's impact indeed requires an extreme space-time perspective greatly enlarged. Ultimately, the new music world has responded and continues to respond to Parch in the same way it responds to the work of any artist. It profits where profit is to be had, differs where it does not agree, ignores what does not appeal. Forty years after his death, Parch seems both central and marginal at the same time. That's part of his fascination. In the second decade of the 21st century, that fascination shows no signs of wearing off. To end this program, I'll play perhaps one of the most unexpected responses to Parch's work by the American singer-songwriter Beck. Simply entitled Harry Parch, this song was made around 2009 and posted on Beck's website where it can be downloaded for free. Beck says that the song is, quote, a tribute to the composer and his desire to make the body and music unified into what he termed corporeality. The song employs Parch's 43-tone scale, which expands conventional tonality into a broader variation of frequencies and resonances, unquote. You'll hear that the text of the song names a number of Parch's instruments, including one that Parch didn't actually invent. But hey, thank you for listening to Tentative Affinities. We end this program with Beck's tribute to Harry Parch.
Oh